Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 40 of the Lift Free and Diet Hard podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Coates. So I haven't done this very often, but uh, I've got a little bit of a role reversal. So uh, Mike Milner was really cool and brought me on his Mind Over Macros podcast, which by the way, does really, really well. We're going to come back to that. Um, and it's I never do these, hey, you had me on your podcast, so I got to have you on mine. Like Me and Danny Matranga have appeared back and forth. But that's really it, despite the number of podcasts I've been on. Uh, but uh, as Mike and I have found each other through the, the fitness space and seeing what you're doing, it's like, okay, I really got to get you on here. So that was uh, that's a cool treat to have you today. So uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah, yeah, I'm pumped to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Good. So you're obviously a coach. You're especially a big on the nutrition side of stuff. I know that's where your passion lies. Uh, so we're definitely going to dive in there too. I've just mentioned your podcast host. So that's a little bit of your background. Am I missing anything important there? Uh, not really. I mean, I started as a personal trainer, uh, I guess it was about 11 years ago and, you know, ended up finding my passion on the nutrition side, mainly because that was my biggest struggle. And that was like the hurdle that I had to get over that was preventing me from seeing the results that I wanted. And not only that, but I saw a bunch of other people struggling with the same thing. And uh, so I kind of pivoted in, in that direction and just became super passionate, not just about like nutritional science, which is great, but more so about like sustainability and behavior change and more of the psychology side of things versus just the physiology. So that was it. Um, I am a published author. I wrote a book called The Personality Diet. Um, so uh, it did pretty well. It's still on Amazon. Uh, that was one of, like a passion project for me. And it's funny that the podcast also started as just a passion project and then it kind of picked up some momentum and now, uh, you know, it does pretty well. Um, so that, that pretty much sums it up. I'm glad you mentioned the book. I, I think in terms of something I've probably mentioned on the podcast a little bit before, and this is for, you know, every coach who's trying to build a career brand, what have you. It's great to have social media. We're going to talk a bit about that in a moment, but I feel like it's worth exploring having something that runs deeper. And I will say it has a little bit more substance than just social media. And I like to think of it in terms of, I use the term career capital. Um, you know, certainly long form content is one of them. Uh, and podcasts are a type of long form content career capital. But having written a book, that's a big one. I tend to think in terms of article writing is a really fundamentally, you know, important one. If, if people want to set themselves apart and grow a brand. But, you know, having written an entire book is taking an article and going way beyond. So it's not a lot of people have written books in our space. There are notables. And actually, a lot of my guests actually have written books. My buddy Kevin Mullins has a book. Uh, you know, I'm about to have Joel Jamison up next episode. And I just finished his book, Ultimate to MMA Conditioning. Uh, you know, Christian Thibodeau's got a book, so on and so forth. But not a lot of people necessarily in our, our, in our space do so. I suppose I'll open up your thoughts on the importance of establishing things just beyond a social media presence. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there was a part of it that was more of a, an authority based approach where I did want some more credibility other than just, Hey, I put out content on social media uh, because, you know, in, in our space, it's, it's very saturated. It's, it's incredibly crowded and to stand out, I think there does need to be additional uh, you know, authority, credibility, whatever you want to call it. I, I like the, uh, the way that you phrased it um, with the career capital um, and, and the book really, it, it came from people just saying like, Hey, you provide so much. I, I've been writing daily emails for probably the last three years, every single day. It was just a habit that I started. Uh, it actually stems way back from high school when I had an English teacher who told me I wasn't a good writer and that story played in my head. And so I never wrote. And I, I went for a long period of my life thinking that I just couldn't write because of this one thing that somebody told me at one point in my life. And I was in a position at, at later on in my career where I was forced to write. And it was actually not bad. And, and it, I enjoyed doing it. And I was like, you know what, I've actually gone this entire time believing this internal dialogue that I'm not a good writer. Well, of course, I'm not a good writer because I haven't written anything. And so I committed at that point, I was just going to write daily. And so I started an email list and put out daily emails and people would respond and be like, these are so good. You should write a book. You should put all of these like daily tidbits and everything that you're delivering. And, and I would get that comment over and over and over. And, um, you know, several years later, I was like, you know what, I have enough in my mind that's kind of uh, I have kind of the framework already outlined in my head and it's time to just put it to paper. And uh, so that was really like 
how it all came to be. There's a couple of things embedded there too. Um, if we're writing on a near daily basis, emails, uh, social media, right? If you're putting up your, your picture or post or caption or whatever, but there's still usually a writing component to the Instagram um, posts. Obviously, if you're writing on Facebook, there's writing. It's all writing. Any fitness professional who wants to do anything beyond just train the client on the floor probably does need to develop some skill as a writer. And even to have more people on the floor to work with, or if you're in the online space, you're communicating and marketing in such a way that attracts more people. If you want to, to have anything beyond just pure word of mouth, which has worked for some people, you'd better write. And if you are better at writing, whether it's short writing for these little captions or, or emails or something longer, it's going to be a valuable skill. And the second thing is, you know, someone who thinks about, oh, God, I can never write a book, you know, that would be so time consuming. If you're writing a daily email, if you add up all of the writing time that went into all those emails, that probably is the equivalent of what it would take to write a book. Now, hopefully it doesn't take three years to do a book, but hell, if you have an ambition to write a book and you just pick away at it and you started and three years down the road, you've accumulated enough that still a book ahead of the person who said, nah, I'm not going to start. Yeah, completely agree. And, and it's funny because my whole approach was to just block off the same amount of time every single day for the book. And it didn't matter if the words were pouring out of me or if I had nothing to say, it was that amount of time was always going to be dedicated to writing my book. So I knew that there was going to be that window to get something done and some days it was really bad. And some days I didn't make any progress, but at least I knew I was sitting there and I had that time blocked off. And then, you know, some days it was like, man, I'm just cranking and, and the words are flowing and everything is, is coming together. Uh, and it was just that consistency over time. We, we often think of, and, and this can be a parallel to, to fitness and nutrition, but we often think of the end goal and how far away it feels versus if I can just do this little thing one day at a time, the compounding interest on that will eventually get me towards that end goal. That's exactly true. And for anybody who aspires to write, what you just described about time blocking, well, A, that's what Stephen King does, pretty much the most prolific and one of the most, I think I would rank him as probably number two in terms of financial success as an author, maybe behind only JK Rowling. I presume that to be factually accurate, but I'm sure it's close. Um, and the whole thing about some days not being so good. I, I've read lots of books on writing now. I think everybody who's interested should at least read one, maybe two. Every one of them is going to have something along those lines to say that even the most famous writers or Hemingways and uh, Norman Mailers and whoever loves to study famous writers and get into the old classics, all those people, they didn't just write perfect. It just didn't come out in the form, the end form the first time they went through rough drafts and first drafts and several drafts, a lot of editing. In fact, I think the greatest skill in presenting really great quality writing is in the editing. I spend far more time editing and finishing and polishing any article than I do actually writing the substance of it. Yeah, definitely. I had to go through and reorganize all of the chapters. Like I had pretty much finished the first draft and then realized that the order didn't sit well with me. And I'm like, you know what, we're going back to the drawing board and we're changing around how everything is going to flow. Um, so absolutely. It's, it's just a matter of, you know, taking the, the next step and the next step and the next step. And uh, you know, it doesn't matter if you can see as, as far as you want to go, it just matters that you can see what's right in front of you. So um, I just, you know, sometimes that, that mindset is difficult because we, we get in our heads about, what needs to be done and how perfect it needs to be. And, and oftentimes that, you know, paralysis by analysis, it, pre it prevents us from doing anything. So we're like, well, if I can't, you know, you hear this all the time. It's like, well, my schedule is a mess and, uh, you know, it's a really bad time of the year for me. So uh, maybe I should prioritize hiring a coach later on when I have more time. It's like, that, that's never going to be the case. There's never going to be the perfect circumstances. It's, it's truly just a matter of getting yourself to, to take that next step, whatever that step looks like. I first heard this idea from John Berardi when he was on a podcast I listened to, and I've run with it a bit. He tells a story about how he talked to an old friend, and I think I've got it more or less right. 
And this old friend is telling John Berardi, PhD, you know, precision nutrition, that he has a perfect way to lose weight and uh, get back in shape. And of course, Berardi's telling the story. His, his old friend is not in shape at this point. So he's kind of curious as to why he's not doing it. And then the guy proceeds to explain how he's going to brute force cardio and a big chunk of time consuming shit that he did in the past when he was in his 20s, right? And I think at the time they were probably in their mid to late 40s. And the excuse, and of course, John's like, well, why aren't you applying it? Well, I don't have the time. So I always think of it in these terms. We develop skills when we're younger, when we have an abundance of this free time, the way that we work out. And maybe it's muscle building guys, you know, an hour and a half to two hours in the gym, plus, you know, pretty regimented nutrition throughout the day. And then we get away from that for a while. Life changes, right? Life, until maybe you get into retirement age, and if you don't do it before, then it's going to be too late anyway. It's not going to give us the abundance of free time that we need to do it in this brute force sort of manner. So the skills that we learned in the past are now actually working against us and preventing us from doing anything at all. So with our clients, and certainly even sometimes for ourselves, we have to rebuild a new set of skills and let go of those old skills that were that are holding us back. And if it means doing 45 minute workouts, and if it means you know, other approaches to nutrition versus just the brute force stuff that we could get away with in our twenties, um, we have to ditch the old way. Yeah, completely. I think that's one of the things that I find the most enjoyable. I look at it as like this puzzle because there's never going to be, you know, could we outline the perfect nutrition plan? I mean, you know, I don't believe in perfection, but you know, let's just say hypothetically, we had the ability to say like there was the, the perfect way of, of dieting, the perfect way of eating that was guaranteed to get results. But then you have life and you have the, the, you know, intricacies of what we all deal with on a daily basis. And that looks different for everyone, you know, from work life to personal life and, and relationships and kids and families and social lives and all the things that we want to be doing to experience life. And now it becomes kind of like a puzzle. Like how can we still achieve the success we want while incorporating some of the things that we enjoy. And, and it often comes from kind of reprogramming, like you mentioned, some of the things that we've learned and established because just fundamentally, if what we were currently doing was going to get us to where we wanted to go, it probably would have happened. If we're, I'm just talking about from like a habitual standpoint, the things, the, the habits, the routines, the, day, the, the things that we do on a daily basis, if that was gonna get you to your end goal, it probably would have happened by now. So we often think that we can fix that just by fixing something like nutrition. But if your environment is still set up in a way where you're going to default back to previous habits, or you're always uh, kind of, you're always in these situations where you have to flex that willpower muscle and you have to be exposed to, you know, processed foods all the time and alcohol all the time. And it's, you know, you haven't changed anything about your environment. It becomes really challenging to get to where you want to be from, from a lifestyle standpoint. So I always look at kind of like, what are the, the pieces of the puzzle that we need to address and how can we, you know, kind of unlearn some of those previous habits and then rewire so that we're establishing an environment that's more conducive to long-term success. So I can still go out and have a beer with a buddy of mine if I want to do that. And I can still maintain a level of fitness because I'm not exposed to that seven days a week, right? It's, it's the exception to the rule and it's part of an overall lifestyle. Um, so I'm not sure if that even answers the question, but um, you know, I, I think that that is really like when, when you think about what we're all trying to achieve, it's, it, should be, it should get to a point where it's kind of on autopilot and then we can ratchet it up if we want something a little bit more extreme. Like if I, you know, I always like to say, I, I sit in this level of, lifestyle leanness where I'm not dialed in all the time, but if I wanted to, and I had like a photo shoot, I wanted to do, you know, four to six weeks tops, I'll be fine. It's just, uh, so, so having kind of those, those habits, those rituals in place that are more conducive to long-term success, uh, I think kind of to, to your point, like what we've picked up on, sometimes we just have to relearn um, and set up an environment for success. I wanted to make this at least significantly about nutrition. So you've opened the door to a couple things that I figure, let's set you loose and elaborate on them. First one being food environment. So let's take that further. I think there are a lot of people out there who call themselves coaches. 
I certainly, I don't, I don't like to pick on any particular corner of the industry, but I noticed that the bodybuilding quote coach, you know, every, if we all have them on our social media and every once in a while, one of them pops up and there's always a post that says, well, if you don't follow the plan, if you're not listening to the coach and you're not getting results, that's your fault. And I hear that and I go, bullshit. That is absolute bullshit. A coach is not a person who gives a plan with the expectation of perfect adherence. Who has ever worked with more than maybe one to 2% of the clients you've ever had who've been close to perfectly adherent? So when the coach needs to broadcast the message that they're not responsible if someone isn't following the plan, the definition, Ozzy's made an appearance here for anybody who's going to be watching the video of this on YouTube. Um, the, sorry, I lost my trade there. If, if you can't call yourself a coach, if you're not willing to get into the weeds and look at what the obstacles and the challenges are and help that client work through them. Now, I understand the bodybuilding world. I get it. There's two factors. One is in order to get up on stage, you know, bikini girls, whatever, and look a certain way in a certain time frame, they do have to stay on plan. I get that. But there's another point too, and this is what I'm calling bullshit on. There's a lot of people in that space who, you know, especially some of the ones with, uh, you know, the credential of having gotten their pro card who all of a sudden think, all right, well, now I have the right to charge this amount of money and give everybody a same or very similar nutrition and training program. We fucking know this shit happens. And this is garbage behavior. And they want to do the least amount of work and earn a significant living in the process. And I don't know, I mean, to each your own, if you're able to get away with that crap and trade off your name and, and get people up on stage and they look good and your clients otherwise are pretty happy. Okay, fair. You know, that's on the person buying it. But for everybody else, you know, you're not a coach. If your answer is you just have to follow my plan, you're a programmer, but that's not coaching. So throw that back to you. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I actually did a whole post on this and I said, uh, you know, the, the whole phrase, like, just get back on track. That's inherently, there's nothing wrong with that idea, but I've seen it completely overused and kind of bastardized with coaches who have no other tools in the toolbox, other than if you're not following my plan perfectly and you stray from that, then just get back on it. But like there, there needs to be a lesson there. If the individual has a really hard time with adherence, then maybe it's the vehicle, maybe it's the uh, prescription, maybe it's the way that you're communicating. There, there's possibly a gap in the process that the coach needs to take care of. And more often than not, you know, I would say that that's the case in my experience. There's, there's usually, you know, with a coach uh, looking at individual context, looking at individual situations, uh, there are always ways uh, I shouldn't say hundred percent of the time, but there are often ways to work around the sticking points. So whatever that might be, you know, for some people, it's like, well, uh, you know, I have, uh, you know, my, my kids always want to eat crap food. So I always have crap food in the house and that's kind of my sticking point. And for, for other people, it's like uh, my work schedule is really busy. So I don't have that much time to plan my meals. And for other people, it's like, I, you know, I drink, you know, every weekend and I sabotage my progress, right? There's, there's typically a sticking point where the coach can come up with some kind of a plan, whether it be a compromise or whether there's some way to navigate around that sticking point. Uh, but just saying like, and this was something that I learned very quickly early on in my career when I started coaching nutrition was that it was very macro based. It was very numbers based and it was essentially just hit your macros. And if you're not hitting your macros, do better at hitting your macros. And I just found that to be insufficient. And it, and the problem that I had mostly was that the, the clients would feel like they were broken or there was something fundamentally wrong with them. Like, why can't I just hit these numbers every single day for the rest of my life? And it's like, that's, that's not practical. Um, so as coaches, we have to have more tools in the toolbox to be able to communicate, to be able to adapt to whatever that individual situation is. And, and you know, I think that's why the, the cookie cutter plans, the saying like, all right, I have this this way of doing things that's going to work for everyone, um, it doesn't hold up anecdotally. And, you know, we see that even if you want to take it to like, you know, the scientific level, there's going to be individual variants across the board. So we can't just say, this is the way we have to look at context, we have to look at 
all these different things, dieting history and personal life and work life and social life and, um, you know, personal preferences and, and, you know, activity levels, all these different things that play a role. Um, and then it's still a work in progress because there's going to be some fine tuning along the way. Things are going to change. We're, we're not the same today that we were a year ago. We're not going to be the same in a year that we are today. There has to be uh, a process of evolution when you're talking about something like nutrition. There's so much wrapped up in there. Something that you said, it was sort of embedded. I don't know how to put this. One way I like to approach nutrition with clients and even training consistency is it's not about this black or white, you're doing it wrong versus perfection. If we can get them to improve their behavior and a lot of the things you described, like the, the, the problem episodes, you know, it's binge behavior on weekends, for example. If we can get that person to lessen the frequency, duration, and severity of, you know, off modes, binge behavior, um, getting them to go from, well, I went out and had drinks and, and ate crap with friends on Friday, Friday after work. Oh, I've blown it. You know, fuck it. Let's, I might as well just like throw in the towel this weekend. I'll reset on Monday, right? Breaking that kind of thought process to going, all right. You know, shit, I, I did Friday evening, got a little out of hand. They get up Saturday morning, big glass of water. I'm not feeling the best. I'm going to still make a good breakfast. And I'm going to try to make a pretty good day out of it. And if you can get people to go from losing an entire weekend or an entire day into kind of going, all right, you know what? I fell off the plan and, not, and breaking the guilt and not, not even making someone certainly feel shame for having, quote, fucked up on a particular meal. Okay, forgive yourself. Move on from that get right back to things, the skills to get right back on. And it's just harm mitigation. If we can be successful with that, that'll probably take care of a lot of the problems that your average, you know, weight loss client is dealing with, because in some way, shape or form, it's those kind of behaviors that's probably resulting in the long-term weight gain, significant weight gain. Yeah. And, and that's everything. Like the way that you just described that, um, that takes care of most things. And it's funny because when I bring somebody into our program, one of the first things that we talk about before we get into anything about the actual foods and, and training activity, recovery, any of that, I talk about their perception of failure. How do you perceive failure? What happens in your, in your mind when you do have a day like that? And we talk about you know, the binge episode or the weekend indulgences or you know, the, the snacking or whatever it may be that they're struggling with. And, and we walk through the process of what's your perception of that event? Uh, because that is the key to everything. If we can get somebody to realize that that moment is just a moment, it's not going to make or break anything. And it's actually a great opportunity to learn um, because sometimes it's like the this all or nothing mindset and that they feel this need to be perfect. And then that one kind of moment of, oh, I, I made a bad choice. And then it kind of spirals. Uh, oftentimes they're viewing it as this, you know, this means of perfection. Like I, there's, there's no wiggle room whatsoever. Um, so if we can get somebody to perceive that event as I'm human and I, I made a decision in that moment. And for whatever reason, that was the decision I made, but now we can actually use that as a stepping stone to learn what was going on. You know, were there, was there a trigger involved? Was there some kind of emotional event? Was there stress? Was there something that we can take care of and break that pattern? If it is a recurring pattern, because we can do that um, and, and insert some sort of like pattern interrupt and get you on a different path. Uh, but ultimately it's the perception of that event. That's everything. If I can perceive that failure as a learning opportunity, as a chance to grow, as a chance to get better, now I'm going to be successful. Uh, oftentimes people don't realize that uh, it's two sides of the same coin. You can't have success without failure. Um, just like if you were the only person on earth, would you be short or tall? You would have no idea because there's no contrast. You can't, you need that, you know, you need the failure to have success. So uh, oftentimes we think of it as this horrible thing that happened and we're such bad people because we messed up, but really it's necessary. It's inevitable. So let's embrace it from the beginning before we even get into what should I be eating or how should I be training or any of these other things? Like, let's just accept right from the beginning that you're going to fuck up and you're going to fuck up multiple times. So we might as well use it as opportunities to learn and grow versus, uh, you know, when, you know, these, these instances where we beat ourselves up and have these kind of spiral effects and then feel like we have to start all the way over again. 
the beating yourself up thing, especially how many people that we work with, you can tell that getting off plan or having the binge or whatever is so embedded in their sense of themselves, their identity, that they have a deep sense of shame. So one of the best resources that I think trainers should read uh, is Brene Brown's books. She's got a whole series of them. Uh, once I got into them a couple of years ago, I just binged my way through, I think most of them all in one shot, certainly four in a row. And this stuff gets you to, Brene talks about shame and guilt. And you know, for anybody who's not familiar with the concept, I'll simplify one thing. If someone quote fucks up and then they say, well, shit, I did a bad thing. That's guilt. And, and while some people might think feeling guilty is a bad, is a bad thing. Feeling guilty is actually okay. I don't mind if someone feels guilty for having done something they weren't supposed to. What we don't want is them to feel shame over it. Shame's a really nasty um, emotion because shame is, I am a bad person. I am incapable of doing better. And what happens, we've all as coaches had the people who have that kind of reaction. What invariably happens, they feel like they can't do it right. It's such an embedded part of who they are, their failures on this particular domain, whether it's weight loss or consistency worth working out or, or any aspect of it. And that unless they confront that or even recognize it, they're not going to make any progress. So we're also poorly qualified and credentialed to deal super directly in the deep mucking around of that, uh, you know, emotional health stuff. And I think a lot of trainers get themselves in that trap, but at the very least, if you have these resources, you can recognize this stuff. You can have conversations around it to draw your client's attention to it. And if you can at least sort of get them to start to separate the, the quote mistakes or the, the, the things that happen to real people in real life that will throw them off track of their, their nutrition plans and their workouts. And if they can recognize that as not being fundamentally something that's wrong with them, and then they can just forgive themselves for those things, that goes a long way to mitigating the severity duration of these, these, uh, these adverse events. And it might be the difference between someone bouncing right back after a day versus we all know that client that we didn't hear from for six weeks because you know, you're texting them and like, Hey, do you want to book in? And you know, they are, they are embarrassed. They are embarrassed because they have not been consistent and they don't want to let you down. And they see that text message and they're just like, they're not responding. And we've all been there. You know, I like you, I'm on my 11th year in the industry and that's happened a lot. And sometimes they resurface after a little while and sure enough, they, they felt bad. So if we get better at identifying these things and at least having those conversations so people can figure this stuff out, partially for themselves, that's going to make a big, it's going to make a big dent in their progress. Yeah, it's huge. Awareness is always the first step, uh, you know, creating that awareness because you don't know what you don't know. So first we have to bring attention to it and make them aware. Uh, and, and what you said is really an important distinction because it's the difference between saying that this thing happened versus identifying as the person that does that thing, right? So it's like, I think I got this from the book, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, where it's like a statement closes you down and a question opens you up. So in that instance, if I say something like, I can't stay consistent, well, that's a statement. And now I'm identifying myself as somebody who can't stay consistent, you know, and, and that closes me down from opportunity versus if I say, how can I become more consistent? Now that's a question that opens me up to saying, how can I improve on this process? Yeah, sure. I didn't do the best this weekend. That's okay. Now I'm going to explore. And, and I think in the book, it was in the context of uh, the author always saying that his poor dad would always say, I can't afford this. And his rich dad would always say, how can I afford this? And that was always the difference maker between, you know, rich dad, poor dad. So uh, I think it's the same thing when we, when we make those statements about ourselves, we close down any opportunity for learning and growing. And when we ask questions about, and, and you know, sometimes, you know, that's where I, I get back to coaching. Uh, you know, it's just, you know, mostly communication. It's mostly listening and asking the right questions. And we're just trying to lead an individual because, you know, at the end of the day, you can't force anybody to change. Somebody has to be willing to change. You know, we can, we can educate, we can inspire, we can, you know, do everything we can to try and get somebody to change, but they have to make the decision for themselves. So if we're asking the right questions and we're listening, we're, we're leading, then 
hopefully we're guiding them to their own conclusion about what needs to change, uh, but we can't force it. So as coaches, we need to have that tool in our toolbox to be able to shine that light on, all right, this is what's happening and then get them to start to uh, become aware and, and ask themselves some questions that lead to, uh, you know, changing the path that they're on, if that's the ultimate goal. And what you described just prior is fixed mindset versus growth mindset. You also referenced it when you mentioned that teacher who told you you were a bad writer, right? And hearing enough of that stuff and you believe that long enough and that becomes a fixed mindset. Now that of course can change over time. If anybody wants to get really in the weeds on that concept, Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, is all about that. And yeah, a, a fixed mindset is someone who is restricted by the belief that they cannot do something. How many people that we are coaching and dealing with have fixed mindsets around their ability to do things. It ties in with their identity. It ties in with shame triggers over not being able to do certain things. So coaches, really good book and resource to read. A few other resources before I pivot into something else, anything else that's been really fundamentally critical on your coaching skill development over the years? Uh, yeah. I mean, when you mentioned the, the fixed versus growth mindset, I referenced a study in my book that uh, where they had the subjects, two groups, and they actually were uh, setting them up on a 12 week training and nutrition plan. And the only difference was that they had one group read an article that was very growth mindset centric. It was all about how you have control over your destiny and genetics don't play that much of a role. And, and it was very much about like you control what happens to you. And they had the other group read a very fixed mindset article that was basically like, this is the hand you were dealt. It is what it is. You can try and maybe you'll make some progress, but it's largely predetermined. Uh, and there was a significant difference in progress, same training, same nutrition, everything was controlled. And the growth mindset group made, made a huge uh, amount of progress versus the fixed mindset group. Um, in terms of like resources that, that I've leaned, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I don't actually read a lot of nutrition and fitness related books in that space. You know, I've, I've read Changemaker by John Berardi. I've, I just got uh, Sean Stevenson's new book. Um, I've, you know, I have, read some, but I, I'm more in the, like, if you know, you can't already tell more on like the mindset side of things, I read a lot on psychology, uh, Ryan holiday type of stuff. Uh, you know, I've different books on stoicism, just, you know, trying to, uh, sharpen the, the mindset tools. And, and that's really, you know, kind of where my wheelhouse is. That stuff's probably more important anyway. I think once you have the nutrition science fundamentals down, and there's a few good books there, Renaissance Periodization Diet 2.0 book, great you know scientific resource when it comes to nutrition. Uh, Fat Loss Forever, Lane Norton's book. Honestly, that's a really damn good one, and it's worth reading. Yeah. Um, I really love uh, The Lean Muscle Diet, Lou Schuler and Alan Aragon's book. I think that's a great entry-level personal trainer nutrition book. Poor Lou just shared on his, uh, his social media that he tore both quad tendons. I don't know if you know Lou, but uh, you know I met Lou at a few conferences and he's a fantastic, he's been a big uh, inspiration in terms of my writing as it's grown over the years. So uh, I shot him a message about it, but yeah, Lou just like just destroyed both of his quad tendons. So he's in a world of hurt right now, but Lou's such a good writer. He still has to spin a, a an engaging narrative and story on Facebook when he told the world about this stuff. I'm sure he did. Oh, uh, he's fantastic. Too fun. The, other books that I think along the lines of stuff you're reading, I'd be very shocked if you hadn't read Switch by Chip and Dan Heath. I think that's kind of a classic in that behavior change space. And I'm just looking up on my, I, I love Ryan Holiday as well. Yeah, Cal Newport, uh, Mark Manson. All of, all of Cal's stuff. I, I make fun of, of uh, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. It's a running joke yeah. for me, so... But uh, I think his next book's actually a lot better. I call, I call Subtle Art the twilight of the self-help genre. Um, but then I look at it this way and say, if it's getting people into reading a gateway to the other stuff, you know, reading the good stuff, if Twilight got someone reading Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings, then okay, it was worth it, right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I, I can't help myself. I always love that one. So I mentioned the podcast earlier and I wanted to see, I, I'll start here. So Jordan Syatt was sharing maybe, I don't know, a few weeks ago um, on this a website called Chartable and his podcast, his mini podcast, he has two, 
uh, was charting super, super well in the US in fitness. So I dug around, I was looking to see how mine did. And I was like, holy shit, you know, historically it's done really good. I mean, my peak position ever, I'm again, doing this for four years, was number 21 in the US, number 11 in Canada and fitness and it's all these countries all over the world. But yours also was up doing really well on the charitable. So we know there's so many people now doing podcasts. There's so many out there. It's more challenging than ever for sure to, you know, to get attention. So what to you is really important to the success of your podcast? And what would you say to anybody who's like, do I need a podcast? Do they, do they need a podcast? And if they do decide to, what should they be doing? Yeah. So right off the bat, no, you don't need a podcast. And I think that the, there's so many different outlets and platforms to communicate. And I think it makes sense to start with where you're most comfortable. So if you're more of an image person who can write short captions, then Instagram's, you know, your, your place to start. If you're more of long form, you like to write long form, then email or Facebook would be your place to start. Uh, you know, my podcast is about two and a half years old now. And again, I did that, you know, email was really my first, I just, like I mentioned, I wanted to get better at writing and that was my outlet. So that's what I really mastered first. And it wasn't until I had a well-established email list and felt confident, like, okay, I've got this thing that doesn't take up that much time or energy. Now I can step into another platform like podcast. And it was really just because I felt even with the long form writing, I still felt a little bit limited in how much I could communicate nuance. I'm, if you can't already tell, I like to go on tangents. I like to pull in things from other areas that are interesting to me. Uh, so I was like, a podcast is a perfect chance for me to do that. And I can, you know, if I wanted to talk for two hours, I could, if I only had 15 minutes to share, you know, that's fine too. And I just liked that level of freedom in communication. Um, so somebody, you don't need a podcast, but if you feel like you're, you're somebody who communicates very well in spoken word, then absolutely. It's, it's a great source of delivering information and establishing credibility and, uh, you know, kind of sharing your philosophies and, indoctrinating people into your methodology. But, you know, for me, the most important thing, and, and this goes across, like people always ask about the Facebook algorithm or the Instagram algorithm, right? It's like, how do we crack the algorithm to get more people to see our stuff? And it's the same thing with, you know, podcasting at the end of the day, nothing will be really quality content, like just delivering really valuable information will always beat the algorithm because people want to see it because if you're bringing people in, and you're entertaining and you're engaging and you either you write well or you speak well, whatever it may be, just do that over time consistently really well for a long period of time and you will be successful. Um, I think people try to overcomplicate what it takes to have a successful podcast. It's, you know, for me, sound quality is important. So, you know, invest and, and get a decent mic and, you know, make sure that the sound is, is good. Like that's something that I will regardless of who it is, if the sound quality is off, I typically don't listen. Um, maybe I'm just, you know, kind of a brat in that way, but that's like one of the things that is, is a non-negotiable for me. Uh, but outside of that, just, just be consistent. Uh, and that's, you know, sometimes we have to get out of this mindset of the expectation of an outcome. Like if I podcast, then people will just automatically start listening and I'll get all these leads and I'll make all these sales. It's like, that's a, a transactional way of thinking. Just get into the habit of saying, I'm going to do this every Monday or every Monday and Wednesday, whatever you can commit to. And that's going to be your thing. And that you're going to do that for a really long period of time without the expectation of anything in return. Uh, and that was, you know, honestly, my podcast is probably now my biggest source of lead generation. That didn't happen until probably a year and a half into it. Uh, I don't think I got anything for the first year. And then all of a sudden it was just the consistency and, and the quality, uh, the improvements getting better because with that amount of reps, I'm, I'm on episode 191 or somewhere in that range without amount of reps, it's really hard not to get better. So um, now, you know, I, and so those, those are really like just deliver quality information, be consistent and have some quality sound. This is something that you do quite well. And that's, I don't necessarily do. I'll, I'll make this point. Your podcast is very directed to the potential end user you're trying to help, right? So mind over macros, you're very geared on nutrition. You're bringing in guests that more on guests in a second that are, are geared towards the getting people who need the help, the kind of help they're looking for. 
So, and I think that's actually a really important thing. So I'm going to tell people don't necessarily do what I do. This has been a fun vehicle for me. There's a lot of benefits in the grand scheme of things. Uh, this is actually, even though I introduced it as episode 40, there's 150 episodes on the same stream with, uh, you know, the previous name with my good friend Dean Guido. And so it's really 190 episodes. And I can for certain say that I did get two clients through the podcast. They both came because I had Brett Contreras on a long time ago and Brett shared it on his media and two of his followers who both happen to be local to Edmonton saw, wait, there's an Edmonton geotag on this podcast. They listened, found out that I was here local. One just found me, started following me, found me in a gym and came up and started saying hi. And she's actually down one of my best friends, but she's turning into a client. Uh, and then the other one also through the episode came and asked me a million questions, hired me as a coach as well. They're the only two that I can actually factually say came from the podcast. I've never really thought of the podcast as, hey, I want to you know, get more clients off of this. For me, it's fun. I get to spend an hour talking to you. I get to share you with my audience base. I get to hang out and talk with Brett Contreras or Mike Isertel or Jordan Syatt or Jill Coleman or Lee Boyson, a long list of really cool people through the industry. I've made really cool connections through this podcast. It's something fun. And I know a lot of my podcasting is to other coaches so that way their careers are successful. And while I do a very small mentorship, I never wave it around. It's not something I even like put as part of my brand. I'm not out there trying to build a, a fitness business. We, we all know the business coaches who are in the DMs, that sort of stuff. Like I, I have no ambition to even go anywhere near that kind of space. There are some really good people like your Luca Hosvars and your Pete Dupuis who do that stuff very, very well that I think are worth following. For me, it's fun. It's a little hour of my week that I get to do this, hang out, get you on here, like I said. So there's different reasons you can do it for, but if I think go, you know what? Anybody who A, enjoyed all the stuff we were talking about nutrition in the first place, or B, wants to learn more about how to use a podcast to engage with an audience that could be your clientele, go listen to Mind Over Macros. Go check it out. Seriously, like guys, you know, go listen to a couple episodes. Hell, go listen to my episode with you for starters right there. It's an easy search. And then look through the list of your guests, people that you enjoy as professionals. And if that's good, subscribe. And, uh, you know, I believe in this. Mike, I'm sure you believe in this subscribership and following is earned through good quality work. Yeah, completely agree. And I really started, you know, a lot of the same reasons. It was just being able to do this again. It was a passion project for me and communicate with people like yourself and make relationships. And, you know, the fact that, you know, you mentioned somebody like Joe Coleman, the fact that I can, you know, you know, meant, you know, DM her, or text her or, or, you know, Jay Tita and, and have a conversation just because we had that connection on the, on the podcast and to be able to say like, Hey, you know, here's a situation I've got going on and, and we can, you know, have a, a more meaningful conversation outside of it. That was, you know, really the whole catalyst for, for wanting to do it. And, and again, just because I felt like I was a little bit limited in what I could say through just long form writing. And then as it evolved over time and I, growing the show and having more people reach out, I did get a little bit more intentional about speaking directly to my ideal client and knowing who is the person that wants to work with us in, in my company. And so that was like, okay, there's something here. I can, I can kind of go in this direction and use it more as a tool to connect with my audience and, you know, share a little bit about myself and, and teach and educate and, and do the things that I'm really passionate about. And, and then the nice kind of side effect of that is they learn more about what we're all about. And then it makes it an easy transition when they're like, Hey, you know, I really like what you stand for. Uh, it sounds like it could be a good fit. Like let's, you know, have that conversation. So with a little bit of time we've got left, let's talk a little social media because you did mention about the importance of quality when it came to the podcast, stuff that engages people. And you and I do something kind of similar. You know, we both love that, you know, take our thought, Post it on Twitter and use Twitter as the cap the, the capture this image. I, I don't know if you saw this fun little shitstorm that John Russin stirred up a couple of days ago on his Facebook. So John and John was being John. Anybody who's listened to John on the podcast, John is you know direct. He's intense. He's an incredible 
self-promoter, marketer, builder of his brand and support and supports a lot of the coaches underneath his brand. I've had people like Kevin Mullins and Logan Dubay on my podcast, Clifton Harsky. They're all really awesome people. So John went and actually said this. He said, quote, screenshotting Twitter and posting on Instagram is a sad, lazy excuse for content, end quote. <laughs> To which my, my friend Jay Ashford basically came in and said, blow me. And just like went at him. Now, Jay loves John. So an outsider's watching this going, holy shit, the industry's fighting. And, you know, I get tagged in there. Brian Craw gets tagged in there. A whole bunch of other people. And, and you know, so it ends up in this big, fun discussion. And I just kind of like said, said some points. I, I had no emotion attached to it about how it is the you know, it, it's a, it's an approved graphic style that people recognize and it's very shareable. So you and I probably, you probably agree with me on this. There's nothing that comes close to shareability when it comes to Instagram, which pulls in new followers. My post yesterday, as of recording today, a thousand shares. It was about the women in bulky myth. And that one always plays really well. There was over a hundred new followers between in a 24 hour span because of that post, you know what? And like Jay called Jada being a gatekeeper with this stuff. And here's what I'll say to this. If someone following is trying to grow their social media and you see this and go, well, everybody's doing it. Well, it's still the quality of the ideas you're presenting. Not everybody on your following is following the other people who are doing it. And I will tell you this for sure. Who gives a shit what other coaches think about what you're doing with your media when you're using your media to build your business. You do not need the approval of anybody, no matter how successful they are. Thoughts? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, it's funny that you say that because I used to, as I was coming up in the space and as I started to get more into the nutrition side of things and wanted to really be like established as a thought leader, I used to always hesitate to post anything because I was like, what if Alan Aragon reads this? Or what if Lane Norton reads this? Like, will they approve? And I had to get out of that. Like, first of all, they don't have the time or they don't really care what the hell I have to say. Uh, they've got their own shit to worry about, especially Lane, who's, who's always in the midst of something. Um, <laughs> it's like, they don't care. And even if they did and they disagreed, oh, well, like I have my own opinions. I have my own, like, can we, we can disagree on something and we can still have a conversation around it. And and that's totally fine and, and is is helpful. Like I'm always looking to prove myself wrong. There's, there's going to be this eternal quest to, you know, you know, be wrong more often because that's how we get better. Like, I think we need those conversations when it comes to something shareable like that. I, I said this the other day, I sent it to uh, somebody on my team and I took a screenshot cause I had a, a, a tweet post, whatever on Instagram that had like 1200 shares and 150 new followers. And, and I said uh, something along the lines of, it kind of annoys me that these posts always do so well, just because it's like, it just feels like, um, I, you know, there's, there's, even though there's substance in, in what I'm saying in those posts, like sometimes I'll spend a really long time putting together a thoughtful, like carousel post with all these graphics. And I want it to be like really <laughs> well presented and super helpful information. And it will get like 200 likes and like 20 shares and like, man, and then I just go right back to the tweet post and it blows up. And I'm like, sometimes it is a little frustrating, but uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta do with what works in the, you know, the, the thoughts behind it, you can still have something. It, it just plays to the platform. I think, you know, it's that, if you think about where people are looking at Instagram, their mindset, like, do you really have a short attention span uh, more so than, than on Facebook? So those little quick, you know, they don't have to read the caption. They can just get the, the, you know, the piece of information they need. They, they like it, they share it, and they move on. So I think it does play well to the platform. And your engaged followers will read your captions. This is the myth that, you know, that long form content's dead. I think the thing to remember about using Instagram is create something that engages that short attention span. But then when you have people who are going to be a fucking fans of what you're doing, they really like it, they'll read the captions. And then when you have a podcast or when you have a, a, an article that you share, they're going to go into that stuff. And that's the way to get people who you want to ultimately move along you know, into your more serious stuff is to, is to grab them by consistently putting out really accessible ideas, quality information. And even if you are restricted, in fact, I think it's wonderful that we're restricted by the character limit of Twitter. It forces you to be a great editor. 
very thoughtful writer, and to be very careful with the choice of your words and your ideas. And I don't know about you, I presume you're just like me, but I'm a careful study of what works and what doesn't. And I'm paying a lot of attention to the style and ideas and topics that seem to perform the best. I'm not trying to be just pragmatic about it just to drive nothing but growth. I actually want to share really good information. But if I can share the best information and do it in such a format that reaches the most eyes, great. We also have, I believe we have a duty of care to stop fucking whining about the quote influencers who are sharing bad information and do a much better job of getting ourselves out there to share the better information, compete for those eyeballs. If we're taking up that space, that's one less of these sleazeballs who is showing up on someone's feed. Or if we use the tactics that are the best attention getting tactics while maintaining integrity and showing other people in the industry how to do this stuff to get their message out, then on the aggregate, that is a net win for uh, better information and it will help more people. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think, you know, something that, what you mentioned about John Russin and what he said, like, you know, I'm sure a lot of it was just to uh, create controversy, which is totally. another way to get eyeballs, you know, so being controversial is a great way to get attention. You say something that's counter to popular belief and all of a sudden you've got a lot of people making comments and, and sharing. And um, so there's, there's ways, you know, again, I, I think to your point, it's like, as long as we're staying in integrity, but you know, I do have some, some beliefs in nutrition that, that are against the grain. And when I share those, uh, people pay attention and they listen, they want to hear more and they're like, explain that. And that's, you know, to your point, that's when they go and listen to a podcast episode that I did on the topic, or that's when they, uh, you know, read something more long form to, to get more information. Well, I'm almost out of time. This has been fun. So again, anyone who's listening, who really enjoys this, Mike's got a lot of episodes on his own podcast. So go dive into that. And if you feel like you wanted more out of this kind of conversation, start with the episode where I appear. Um, in the meantime, brother, thank you so much. I'm grateful that you took the time to come talk to me. Where can people find you and your podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. This was a great conversation. A lot of fun for me. Um, so my podcast is Mind Over Macros. It's on all of the platforms. Um, so if you, you know, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, I think it's on Amazon Music now, whatever, whatever you can find a podcast, it's there. Um, so you can just search Mind Over Macros. And then, uh, yeah, you can find me on Instagram at coach underscore Mike underscore Milner. And uh, that's where I hang out. Um, Facebook, it's just my name, Mike Milner. But yeah, those are all good places to start. I find that with almost everybody now, all roads lead through Instagram. And then you can find everything else. You can find the long form content. So again, goes to what we were talking about. So please go check out what Mike's doing. Uh, go give him a follow. And if by chance you're a, a new listener who is finding me through Mike's media, well, I've thrown out a bunch of names. If any of those people are, that you are a fan of, a follower of, shows up on my list of past guests, because I'm really proud of the who's who of the industry that's been there. And I'm working on checking off more of those boxes, like, again, Joel Jameson uh, should be up next. Then uh, maybe I can earn your subscription and continuing listen uh, so thanks anyway for showing up and listening. I appreciate it. And I suppose I could still ask for the, you know, the five-star review for anybody who's been a longtime listener. And the last thing I like to remind some time is if you're a longtime listener and I've never heard of you, heard from you, if you are following me on social media, then please reach out. I'd love to hear from you. If you're not, find me at Andrew Coates Fitness on Instagram. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. And thank you everyone for listening.